Forty-five people have been president of the United States, and as mandated by law, each took the oath of office before serving. Since the Constitution was enacted, only six communities have played host to the swearing-in ceremony. Five large cities, all extremely well-known, and one small town, a very small town. George Washington took the oath in New York City, which at the time was the temporary capital. His first inauguration took place at Federal Hall on Wall Street, the seat of government at the time. New York played host once more, years later when James Garfield died. Vice President Chester A. Arthur was sworn in at his apartment located at 123 Lexington Avenue. Philadelphia was next. It had taken over as the temporary capital while Washington, D.C. was being constructed. Washington's second term began there, and John Adams also was sworn in at Philadelphia. William McKinley was attending a World's Fair in Buffalo when he was shot by an assassin. Although he lived for a while after the shooting, he did die in the city, and Vice President Teddy Roosevelt took the oath there. After the Kennedy assassination... Lyndon Johnson was sworn in aboard Air Force One as it sat on the runway of Love Field in Dallas. All the rest took place in the District of Columbia, most amid all the pomp and circumstance on the designated Inauguration Day. All of them but one, that is. The sixth and final community on the very exclusive list is not a big and famous city. It is decidedly not New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Dallas, or Buffalo. Instead, it is the tiny, as in a population today of only 619 hearty souls tiny, little Vermont community of Plymouth, and more specifically, in that town's village of Plymouth Notch. At 2.37 a.m., with just a few people gathered by a kerosene lamp in a farmhouse living room with no phone connection to the outside world, the press, represented by one local reporter, the power of the presidency changed hands. Just how did Plymouth, Vermont, join the likes of these major metropolitan communities, known the world over? And what was the atmosphere like when, for a few minutes, in the middle of a 1923 night, it was center stage of world events? It might seem like something straight out of romantic fiction, but it was real. And it's also history. Before describing the events of August 3rd and 4th of 1923, let's back up a little to take a look at the methodical rise of Calvin Coolidge, son of a Vermont storekeeper, farmer, insurance salesman, and notary public, a jack-of-all-trades. Throughout his life, Calvin was a fiscal conservative and spent little money. He also was known as one who spoke only when necessary, earning him the nickname Silent Cal. Both these traits became more pronounced the further up the ladder he rose. He left his home state at the age of 18 and attended college at Amherst. Upon graduation, he moved to the Massachusetts city of Northampton. His first attempt at politics didn't go well. 
he lost a race for school committee to a man named John Kennedy. But it proved to be his only political setback. Next, he won a seat on the city council. After a stint as that body's president, he became mayor. Next up was a state representative's seat, followed by a state senate victory. Again, he was chosen as the presiding officer of the body he belonged to. As his next jump in responsibility, he was elected as Samuel McCall's lieutenant governor. He succeeded McCall and moved to the corner office. He was governor of Massachusetts during Boston's 1919 police strike and made the famous comment, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. It catapulted him into fame across the country, and he was put on the successful 1920 national ticket with Warren G. Harding. In July of 1923, about two and a half years into the term, Harding went on a 15,000-mile cross-country speaking tour he called the Voyage of Understanding. Toward the end of the trip, he was not feeling well, but he assumed it was just the toll taken by traveling, combined with his recovery from a bout with food poisoning. While sitting in a hotel room at San Francisco's Palace Hotel, with his wife reading him an article from the Saturday Evening Post, he dropped dead of an apparent heart attack. On the other side of the country, in fact, almost as far away as one could get and still be in the United States, Calvin Coolidge, vice president and next in line, was visiting with his father at his boyhood home in remote Plymouth Notch. Keep in mind, although this was the 20th century, Plymouth was a tough place to get to, and there was little in the way of communication. Coolidge's father did not have a phone. Meanwhile, on the porch of the Adna Brown Hotel in Springfield, Vermont, about 35 miles away by road, sat Joseph Fountain, a 25-year-old editor of the Springfield Reporter, together with senatorial candidate and congressman Porter Dale. Herbert Thompson, commander of the local American Legion post, was there as well. They were enjoying the warm summer evening talking politics. At about midnight, a police officer interrupted their conversation to tell Dale that the Western Union office had an urgent message for him. At the same time, the hotel clerk rushed out to tell Editor Fountain that the Boston Bureau of the AP Wire Service was on the phone for him. Both men received the same message. The president was dead. In Fountain's case, the wire service asked him to get to Plymouth as fast as possible to, sc- to cover the story for them. The Associated Press knew that the vice president was visiting there. All three men, Fountain, Dale, and Thompson, hailed a taxi and headed out into the night toward the biggest story of their lives. The trip was a long and winding one through the hills and through the pitch blackness. This was very rural country. According to Fountain's book, Homestead Inaugural, the taxi met another car apparently coming from Plymouth. Fountain recognized a reporter in the oncoming vehicle, so he rolled down the window of the cab as they passed and asked what was happening. He was told, Mr. Coolidge has gone to bed. Coolidge will take the office, the oath of office in the morning. There was no use going up there. Fountain turned to Congressman Dale, and Dale looked back at him. 
They both said to the cab driver, We'll go on. When they arrived at the Coolidge homestead, Dale went looking for Colonel John Coolidge, Calvin's father and a longtime friend of his. He convinced them that his son needed to take the oath of office as soon as possible, for the good of the country. He shouldn't wait for morning. The colonel asked who could administer it. Dale replied, you can, as a notary public. The elder Coolidge was skeptical. Dale and the younger Coolidge, who was now awake again, walked to the nearby Silly's store, where there was a telephone. Dale contacted Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes and asked for his advice. Hughes consulted with the Constitution and confirmed that nothing barred a state-appointed notary public from administering the oath of office. And further, he urged that it be done as quickly as possible to assure continuity in the presidency. They walked back to the house. Calvin Coolidge went upstairs and changed into a business suit, then returned to the living room. According to the Boston Globe, at 2.47 a.m., with only a kerosene lamp for light, and in the presence of Grace, his wife, his secretary, Irvin Geyser, his chauffeur, Joe McInerney, Press Lane, Congressman Dale, Herbert Thompson, and Joe Fountain, one of the most unusual ceremonies in American political history took place. Reading from a hastily typed copy of the oath, John C. Coolidge, father of the Vice President of the United States, swore in his son as the 30th President. There is a legend about what took place next. According to the story, the brand new President Coolidge went next door to his father's store. There, from the cooler, he took a bottle of Moxie, a favorite drink of the taciturn and thrifty politician, and he removed the cap. All the others who came to the store with him followed suit, and one of them offered a toast to the new chief executive. After thanking them for their kind words of encouragement, he took a nickel from his pocket and put it on the counter. Following his lead, everyone else did the same. President Coolidge then went back to bed. Meanwhile, the little village had come alive. Word spread fast among townspeople that something extraordinary was happening in their midst. After dawn, his friends and neighbors made their way up to the Coolidge house to offer their well wishes. John Coolidge, a man with as few words as Calvin, said only, My son will make a fine president. The town and county law enforcement acted as temporary bodyguards until Secret Service agents made their way to Vermont from the Boston office. When Coolidge was leaving for Washington, he asked his father to accompany him, but he refused, saying the business needed him in Plymouth. A day after arriving in the capital, as reported years later, Coolidge asked Adolph A. Howling, Justice of the Court of the District of Columbia, to re-administer the oath, apparently still not convinced that a state official, which his father was, could perform it legally. In deference to his father, though, he asked the justice that it be kept secret as long as his father was alive. The story did not come out until 1932, six years after Coolidge Sr. passed away. Even Holing did not believe the second ceremony was necessary, but honored the president's wishes. 
After all, it wasn't the first time the oath was administered by a state official. In fact, even George Washington's first term began with an inauguration by a New York state judge. Of course, when Washington took office, there were no federal agents or judges yet. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives. <laughs>